This series is inspired by the classic American road trip vacation. How many grew up taking road trips as a family? I don't mean those destination trips where you just have the end in mind, you get in the car and you drive 20 straight hours until you're there. That's not a road trip. That's torture. (laughs) And the goal of that is to get to your destination where all the activity happens. No, I'm talking about where you pack your bags, you head out, a basic idea of where you're going to end up. But the fun is the journey. When our kids were old enough to remember, but young enough to still really enjoy it, I took all of my vacation at one time, and we had the privilege four years straight of taking a month and just heading out. Started off in a pop-up, and we had a, a hard side. It's not fair to say we're campers, we're not. We're camperers. <laughs> we dragged that camper with our big van out to Yellowstone, Mammoth Caves, the Great Smoky Mountains, Prince Edward Island. It was awesome. And when we talk about those trips, yeah, we talk about the sites and the places where we stopped. But you know what most often comes up? The things that weren't planned. The places we stayed when we left room for adventure. The Walmart parking lots we spent nights in. The kids remember those things. Even the arguments, that moment where a parent pulls over after too many hours in the car together and says, if you don't stop, I'm turning this thing around and driving all the way home. Problem was we were actually at Mount Rushmore at the time. (laughs) And the only person I fooled was Ella. The youngest at the time, Tommy and Anna, were far too savvy for those threats. But Ella was, no, Dad, no, we'll be better. To me, road trips are a great analogy for what the Christian life is supposed to be like. But most of us treat the Christian life like a destination trip. We think most of what happens on earth is getting ready for the destination, getting ready for heaven. And we think of the gospel as the information I need to make sure when life's done, I'll get to heaven. And the rest of life here is to store up treasures in heaven and prepare myself for heaven and wait it out. The way we live our lives, it's more like a destination type of vacation as an analogy, but the way Scripture, the way Jesus looked at the life into which he called us, it was a road trip. It was a road trip because it's in the journey that we find life. And so all summer, we're going to take the basic concepts, the things that happen, even the unexpected parts of a road trip, and use them as an analogy for what this Christian journey is meant to be like. We're going to start today in Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1, I invite you to turn with me. There's a a rich amount of teaching in this, this statement. Jesus calling his disciples, the beginning of his ministry. These are the very first words that Mark records Jesus saying. We're going to begin at verse 14. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. At once they left their nets and followed him. When he had gone a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat preparing their nets. 
Without delay, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. So very quickly, Mark gets right to it. He gets right to Jesus' ministry and sets the whole stage, and we see two things that we're going to look at today that set our sights on this summer-long series of discovering the life that God's called us to. We see what the gospel was as Jesus understood it, and of course, that matters most because it was his gospel, what Jesus' gospel was, and then what his plan was in relation to that. So before we dig into it a little bit, I want to ask you, if you right now had an opportunity, somebody said, what's the gospel? How do I gain eternal life? How would you talk about and explain the gospel to somebody? If you've been a follower of Jesus for any period of time and been trained in, in different ways to share the gospel, it might be the Romans road, or it might be steps to peace with God or four spiritual laws. Essentially, for modern Christianity, the gospel is this the basic facts I need to get into heaven when I die. We've boiled it all down to that. What are the basic things you need to know so that when you die, you go to heaven? But that was not Jesus' concept of the gospel. Now, I want to be clear here. The facts of the gospel, the work of Christ, redeeming us from our sin and offering us salvation because of his work on the cross and life because of his resurrection from the dead, those are all at the heart of the gospel. But the gospel is a whole lot bigger than the irreducible minimum, the skinny on how to get to heaven, which is what we've turned it into. When Jesus referred to the gospel, it was always associated with the kingdom of God. Right here in Mark chapter 1, he says the kingdom of God is near. In fact, in the synagogue, he reads a prophecy about the coming of the Messiah ushering in the year of Jubilee. And what he said in that synagogue when he read that was, this has been fulfilled in your midst. So when Jesus says the kingdom of God is near, he doesn't mean it's soon. He means it's close. It is now here, and it's something you can enter into. It's nearby. The kingdom of God has come. Luke 8 says that Jesus went about all the cities and villages, and what did he preach? He preached the kingdom of God. Luke chapter 9, he gathers his followers, and he sends them out to minister, and he tells them to proclaim what? The good news of the kingdom of God. This is his message throughout. The gospel, the good news, is always associated. In fact, Jesus referred to it as the good news of the kingdom of God. In Acts chapter 1, after Jesus has died on the cross, buried, come back to life from the dead, and now he's with his disciples for 40 days, training them, preparing them for their next mission as he departs and sends them out into the world. What does it say in Acts chapter one he taught about? Who knows? The kingdom of God. Now as we follow the apostles through the book of Acts, it says over and over again they're preaching the gospel of the kingdom. So if you were to say the central theme of the gospel that Jesus and the apostles preached was, what would it be? The kingdom of God. Think about it. Is there any place in any of the gospels where Jesus says, now listen, I'm going to give you the basic stuff you need to know. So when you get to heaven, you'll get in. 
He never does that. Jesus' idea of the gospel is a whole lot bigger. The kingdom was not some future event. It was something that had come, and what Jesus did was invite us into that kingdom experience now. I heard John Ortberg preach about this um, several years ago, and he invoked that great theological treatise known as Monty Python's Quest for the Holy Grail. <laughs> How many of you have seen the movie? There's that scene towards the end where there's this great abyss they have to cross over, and there's this rickety bridge, and the bridge keeper says to them, I'm going to ask you three questions. If you answer the three questions correct, you can cross the abyss. And so the first of King Arthur's group comes up, and he says, what's your name? He gives his name. What's your quest? I search for the grail. And then his third question was, what's your favorite color? He goes, blue. Crossed over safely. The second man comes up, and now he's, he's pretty confident. What's your name? He gives him his name. What's your quest? I search for the grail. And then he asks him, what's the capital of Assyria? He says, I don't know. <laughs> Cast into the abyss. Now the third man is kind of nervous. Asks him his name. Gives him his name. Asks him his quest. I search for the, for the grail. And then he says, what's your favorite color? And he's so nervous, he goes, red. No, blue. Ah, he's cast into the abyss. Now, King Arthur comes to the bridge. And the bridge keeper says, what's your name? I am Arthur of the Brits. What's your quest? I quest for the Holy Grail. And then the third question is this running gag throughout the entire movie. He says, what's the airspeed velocity of a coconut-laden swallow? <laughs> Arthur says, well, that depends. Is it a European or an African swallow? Gatekeeper says, I don't know. The gatekeeper falls into the abyss. <laughs> We've turned the gospel into that. Get it right, and you can get in. That wasn't Jesus' idea, nor was it the apostles' idea of the gospel. The gospel was so much bigger. The gospel was not just about the hereafter. It's about here and now. It's about eternal life with God now and forever, as we saw last week as we ended our study of the creed. It is what Jesus meant when he said, I came that you might have life to the full, life as I intended it, life with God. That is life in the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is about God's reign in us now and yet also someday coming fully to earth. It's about recreating us and humanity and yes, someday heaven and earth, but it's all about what we're living now. The gospel is Jesus inviting us into the kingdom. What was his message? His message is the kingdom is now available through me to everyone. And our response is to repent, turn from our old ways, believe, and enter into that kingdom life with Jesus. That is a startlingly different idea of the gospel than how we've come to preach it. And yet, we want to be a gospel community. This sermon, other than the theme, the overlapping theme of road trip, this is pretty much the sermon I preached our very first public worship service for the journey three and a half years ago. This whole idea of the journey, the road trip, speaks to our DNA as a church. And one of the things we say about who we are is that we are first and foremost a gospel community. 
And the gospel is not just what we preach that gets us safely into the family of God. It's just not the ticket at the door. The gospel is the context in which we live. It's everything. The gospel is meant to transform culture. It's meant to transform our community. It's meant to transform us. It's about the kingdom of God. And we as the church have been given the keys to that kingdom. And what is the keys? It's the gospel of the kingdom. Not something we just proclaim, it's something we live in and cherish. Now, we want to move on and look at the next part of this passage, because Jesus didn't only have a message, a gospel. He had a plan. He had a, a strategy for how he was going to pull people into this kingdom. And what was that? Verse 17. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. So let's be clear. Jesus' plan for extending his kingdom and bringing everyone who would repent and believe into the kingdom was not that we would join a church, not that we would become part of a new religion over which his name would be assigned. Jesus' strategy to pull us into the kingdom of God was to invite us into journey with him. Come, follow me. We're going to take this simple little verse and break it up into four aspects of what it means to enter into journey with Jesus. Those of us that have grown up as Christians may know this verse uh, through an old children's song. I will make you fishers of men, fishers of men. men. There you go. (laughs) Most of us have been taught to view this verse as though this verse is a commissioning but it's not a commissioning this is a commencement this is the beginning of jesus relationship with these followers the commissioning will come he will someday send them out to make disciples and they will truly become fishers of men this is an invitation into journey with him Fishers of men is part of that invitation. It's a picture of what will happen. But it's the invitation we want to look at. And we're going to break it down simply into four aspects of this verse. Come, follow me, I will make you fishers of men. Let's look at the first one. Come, come. This is about leaving behind. In order for these young men To follow Jesus, they needed to drop their nets, and they needed, in this case, to also leave their families behind. When Christ calls us, it's about coming after him. We think of coming to know Christ as asking him to come into our lives. When people talk about their conversion, they'll say, when I ask Jesus to come into my life, and That's well-meaning, and it has great sentiment behind it, but it can be distracting to the real call. Jesus doesn't want us to ask him to come into our life. The call of Jesus is for us to come into his life. It's a very significant difference. I've got my life here. Here's my limitations, here's my abilities, here's my resources, here's my struggles, here's my relationship. Something's missing. Oh, God's missing. God, come into this. 
What we're doing is limiting our relationship with God to the boundaries that our life has created for us, which is largely an act of our own will. When I think of my relationship with God as inviting him into my life, I'm maintaining a certain level of control and authority. It's self-serving, self-centered, and self-driven to think that my relationship with God is summarized by me letting him come into my life. Jesus invites you to come into his life. What a difference. My life has such limitation. It's so small. Christ's life is unlimited territory. Now, I'm thinking some of you are saying, well, wait a minute, Tom. There's this verse in the Bible where Jesus actually says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone will open the door to me, I will come in and sup with him and he with me. So what do you mean Jesus doesn't anywhere ask to be invited into our lives? Okay, so let's, let's look at that verse. First of all, that verse is in the book of Revelation. It's written to the church at Laodicea. It's not written to individuals. It's written to a church that has become so settled and satisfied with the way things are going that they haven't noticed that they've left Jesus completely out of what they're doing. What Jesus is offering to that church is to come back to what their original relationship was because they had stopped being the church. The church has to have Christ at the heart of it. That has nothing to do with Jesus' invitation to you into life eternal as his child. There's a lot of churches just like Laodicea. They make it all about me. Let Jesus fix my needs, and as long as it's just Jesus coming into my life and fixing me, I'm good. I have a couple of times shown this commercial for such a church. I'd like to show it now again for your viewing pleasure. Imagine a church where every member is passionately, wholeheartedly, and recklessly calling the shots. I have a busy work week, and by the time Sunday rolls around, I'm tired. So how about a church service that starts when I get there? Can do. When you arrive, we begin. This guy, he plays by his own rules. We want to find a church where if he starts screaming, we're not the bad guys. Say no more. If your baby's screaming, you stay seated. The others around you can leave. You know, financially, Sherry and I don't give a lot to the church, but we'd sure like to know who does. All right, if you join now, you'll know what every person gives in detail. When I'm in the church service, can my car get a buff and a wax? Not just that, but an oil change and a tune-up. Hey, how about tickets to the Super Bowl? That's asking too much. I'm serious. If I'm going to join, I want tickets to the big game. All right, you join now, and we'll get you there. I like a pony. Look in your backyard. Me Church where it's all about you. Yeah. That's a church that thinks it's all about asking God into my life and focusing on my priorities and my needs and my wants and my longings. And that's not the church that Jesus invites us into. Because his church is built on him, not you and me. And so one of the critical things to understand the journey to which God has called us is that, first of all, it's not about you. It's about him. 
it opens up the horizons of what life can be to contemplate that Jesus doesn't want to just squeeze into my small space. And I got news for you, Jesus doesn't fit in your life. He's far too big, far too glorious. But he invites us into his. And what that means is it's not about my limitations, it's about his abilities. It's not just about my issues and my priorities, it's about his plans and his priorities. He invites us to come. And second part is to follow. Two sides of the same coin. Coming means a leaving. Following, obviously, is a pursuit. The Greek for follow is actually two words. And when you put them together, they mean follow in step with or follow from behind. We love to overly sentimentalize our relationship with Jesus to think of us as walking side by side with him. But in terms of the journey that Jesus called us to, he wants us to understand he's the one determining the direction. (laughs) He's leading. We're following. He's not inviting us into a journey that's democratic. If you're going to come after me, you have to understand I'm the one that's going to call the shots. Come and follow And if we do that, what will happen? The next thing he says is, I will make you. Make, in Greek, is poieo. There's a couple of important ideas in it. It invokes commitment on the part of the one who is doing the making. And second, it means create. Jesus says, if you commit to this journey... I will commit to taking my creative force and pouring it into your transformation. Think about that. Jesus, who was the Word, who was with God, who was God, who created all things, stepped into this world, took on flesh. That Jesus who is now with us, who created everything, invites us into a journey of unlimited possibilities because it's his life we're invited into and he offers to take that very same creative force and to turn its attention towards you i'm gonna make you i'm gonna recreate you and that transformation is part of the journey for its entirety there is a part of that creative work that we know happens at the moment we come to Jesus Christ. Paul refers to us in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17. If anyone is in Christ, they're a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. Jesus, referring to that same event as such a dramatic train, it's like being born all over again. So there is that part of the recreative process, but yet what Jesus is promising is an ongoing act of recreation. The journey itself, not just from the moment we begin it with Jesus, but the whole journey is a journey of being recreated and transformed. The Bible refers to that process as sanctification, and it's a major theme in this journey into which Jesus calls us, recreating us constantly. I'm still growing. I've been a professional Christian for more than 30 years. Yes, that means I've made a living at it. 
You'd think I've got it all down. Wouldn't you think that I should have it all down in order to be paid to help others? No, if I thought that, I wouldn't be qualified for this job. The whole point is I'm still on that journey with Jesus. There are things I'm learning now so much more profoundly, things I maybe understood somewhat, but I'm understanding the depths of them and new things as God continues to root out areas in my life. This is a lifelong journey. I think it's so important that we understand that. And then finally, the fourth section. Come, leave behind. You have to let go of the idea that you're going to maintain control and it's just going to be about you and your life. Leave that behind. Follow me. It's about my life, my plans. And in that journey, my commitment to you is I'm going to recreate you. It's going to be a lifelong, delightful journey of transformation. And then the last phrase the familiar one, the childhood Sunday school song one, fishers of men. Now for us, we think of that as what we know these disciples became, evangelists. We're all going to become fishers of men, and we're going to be a part of that great commission of making disciples of every nation. And yes, there's truth to that, but there's something far more personal about that expression for the ones that are first hearing it. And there's a deeper meaning to be found. What were these four men professionally before Jesus called them? They they actually were fishermen. Jesus is saying something really powerful. He's saying, I'm going to take who you are right now. It's how you've grown. It's what you've become. I'm going to use every part of that and transform that into something eternal and powerful. See? It's still you. All the life skills you've learned, all of your uniqueness, all of your abilities that are part of how God created you, but now they are going to be transformed into something that God can use for eternity. See, if the first people he called weren't fishermen, if it was Luke, who was a doctor, he might say, follow me and I will make you a doctor of eternal life. It just doesn't, doesn't work as well, but I think you get the idea. The point is, it's you that Jesus is inviting on this journey. He's been preparing you for it your whole life. And he's going to take exactly who you are, all of your life experiences, including the most painful parts of those life experiences, the ones that you, you, you're still wondering how any good could come out of it. He's going to take every bit of that and use it as part of the stuff out of which he transforms you. It's you, but now a new you. It's you, but it's God's you. It's you, but a better, eternal, blessed you. That's a beautiful picture. What a wonderful thing that Christ has called us into. And how we let our ideas and concepts and misplaced priorities get in the way of this lifelong journey of transformation. Here's an important thing for us to think about as I wrap up here. Many of us spend a long time searching for something until we find Christ. And then we find Jesus. We find a God who loves us so much he becomes us and he knows our pain, and he's acquainted with our grief, and he takes our sin, and in turn, he offers infinite, unlimited, unconditional love to us and invites us in. We find Jesus, 
and we feel like he's the end of our searching. And therefore we think, my search is over, my journey is done because I found Jesus. But what this idea tells us is that the search for Jesus isn't the real journey after all. That's the drifting until Jesus calls us. And that's when the real journey begins. Perhaps God is calling you somehow out of what we've shared to a fresh commitment to this journey with him. Maybe for some of you it's a first commitment. Maybe this is the first time you've considered Jesus' call to come and follow. And you want to say, yes, I want in on that. I invite you to commit to that. And, and if you're a believer here and you recognize that you've made it so much about your life and your needs that you're missing out on these, these grand vistas and possibilities by entering into Christ's life, this could be a moment when you start fresh and begin this journey this summer, redefining and correcting what this, this life is that Jesus has called you to. I encourage you to do that now. And Father, I also commit to that. I, I thank you just for the, the privilege of thinking about this journey over these next weeks. And, and we're excited. I believe no matter where we are in our own journey, we can be very different people by the end of this journey together because your word's going to be at work and your Holy Spirit's going to be bringing it to bear in our hearts and changing us. And Father, I'm saying to you, I'm up for it and I'm in for that. I want to follow you more wholeheartedly. And together we say that, Father, in Jesus' name, amen.